Let me encourage you just to keep that passage open. As Mark said, we're looking at uh, giving um, this Sunday, and actually we're going to be continuing to think about it over the next uh, two Sundays. So we wanted to give a, a good chunk of time to it, three Sundays, and also in, uh, we'll be praying about it at prayer gathering this coming Wednesday, um, and then we're going to be picking it up in our Inspire groups and our small groups the week after as well. Um, because one of the things is we want um, giving, and indeed giving isn't something that is incidental to life in general, but particularly to the Christian life. It's an essential part of it. Um, and we're calling this series The Grace of Giving, because you can see it down there in verse 7 of the passage. At the end of that verse, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And there the apostle is talking not so much about the grace we receive from God, which compels us and moves us to give, but more about the act of giving, which itself is a grace, a double grace. It is a grace to those who receive a gift, but it is also a grace to those who give. Um, it is more blessed to give than to receive, as Jesus says. Now, as we think about this, I've been um, doing some research this last week just to think about where we're at um, in society as a whole on giving and where we're at as a church. And I um, pulled up some helpful statistics, some of which are encouraging. So Christians are three times more generous than the population at large, giving on average £11.60 per week, according to the Charities Aid Foundation recent survey. And if you consider specifically the Church of England, which is the denomination we're in, then generally um, the church um, giving amongst the congregation is 3.3% of income. Now, the Church of England aims for 5% of income given to the church, 5% given to other charitable causes. So 3.3% is not a million miles off. And interestingly, the gospel is a very powerful motivation, the most powerful motivation for giving, because evangelicals um, who have an evangelical understanding, a biblical understanding of the gospel, give most of all Christian groups. 6.5% of their income goes to the local church, and on average, 11.5% of their total income. So some areas really to encourage us there. And yet, when you push into the wider statistics, particularly over time, there is a worrying trend, which is despite the fact that the West is getting, in real terms, um, pretty much any measure you take over the, a longer period of time, getting wealthier, giving is going down. Um, giving is going down in real terms. Giving is not being tracked with inflation. Um, people gave more 50 years ago than they do today as a percentage of their income. They gave more 100 years um, ago than they do today as a percentage of their income, when you look at it in broad terms. Of course, there will be peaks and troughs, but that's the broad trend, which means that you have to kind of grapple with that, because most of us think that we would be more generous if we had more income. But that is not borne out by the statistics. In fact, the opposite trend is happening in Western society. As the West gets wealthier, the West in generally, and here in the UK, we give less. Now, why is that? Well, to understand that, I really think we need to get into the way that giving works. And 2 Corinthians 8 is the most sustained passage, the, most, the longest and the most detailed passage on giving in the whole of Scripture. And so that's why we thought we would look at it and we're going to focus in on particularly verses 1 to 12 as we try to understand how our hearts work. Because ultimately our giving is not primarily a function of practicalities around us, but I want us to see from this passage, giving is primarily a heart issue. It's about your heart. And therefore, of course, it couldn't be more central to your walk with God. Because what does he want from us? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And therefore, loving God with your heart will always impact your wallet. 
So let's look at this, and let's see, first of all, the challenge of giving, the challenge of giving from verses 1 to 5. We're diving straight in. This is actually the third letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians, and then we have 1 Corinthians recorded, and 2 or 2 Corinthians. And he's writing to a church in Corinth that is wealthy. Um, They were an up-and-coming community. They were a trade hub in the ancient Middle East. Um, They were, you know, a kind of a business place where people could kind of make it. And so it has a lot of similarities with London. But as he writes to them, he gives them a challenge in verses 1 to 5, as he focuses not on them, but on a very different community, a much poorer community, the Macedonians. Look at what he says in verse 2 about the Macedonian church. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now just pause for a moment. This is a community in the ancient Middle East 2,000 years ago who Paul labels extreme poverty. So you don't have to be, you know, do too much of a stretch to realize by our standards today they would be extremely poor. And though they're extremely poor, Paul uses them as a paradigm of giving. Why? Because in their extreme poverty, they were richly generous. And look at the nature of this generosity. Verse 3, I testify they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us also. Extreme poverty, but rich in generosity. Secondly, they were eager to give. Did you see that? Verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. No need for a rally call, no need for tin rattling, no need for pressure from the front. This was a people who, though they were very poor, they were so eager to give. They were banging the door down to Paul saying, please let us give. We want to give. And as they gave, Notice they also gave holistically, verse 5. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, which almost certainly means that they had a, um, a disposition of the heart that was so willing to serve God in all and every area. They were devoted to God, prayerful. Um, every aspect of their lives, they wanted to give to God because of what he had given to them. And then also, as it says, verse 5, and then by the will of God also to us. In other words, they probably gave themselves to hospitality, opening up their homes as the Apostle Paul and his team kind of passed through Macedonia. They gave themselves, of course, financially, but it didn't just end at finances. Any help they could do, nothing was too much trouble. So this is this incredibly challenging picture. And of course, it defies all of our normal explanations, doesn't it? Well, I'll give when I get enough money. No, no, they had virtually no money, and they were the most generous of the lot. Oh, I can give my money, but it's difficult at the moment. You know, we're, we're cash-rich, time-poor here in London, so don't ask too much of my time, maybe. No, no, they gave time, they gave hospitality, they gave the money. Do you see how challenging this is? Here is this challenging example. Now, as we've said, despite increasing wealth and well-being, all the metrics are that giving is on the decline in the West. For example, one statistic I came across this week which really struck me was that in the U.S., and, you know, there's more research on the U.S. than the U.K., but I'm told that this translates across, at least in similar terms, to the U.K. In the U.S., did you know that those who are on $20,000 a year, i.e. a baseline income, a baseline income, kind of the living wage, are, get this, eight times more likely to give than those who are on $75,000 a year. Isn't that astonishing? 
If you're on the basically the living wage, $20,000 a year, you are eight times more likely to give than if you're on $75,000 a year. I mean, that is just staggering, and apparently the UK shows a similar trend. Or here's another one for you. Giving was higher in the Great Depression in the US than it is today. It was about 3.2% in the Great Depression. It's about 2.6% amongst Christians today. So even in the Great Depression, when people were tightening up their belts, they gave more than we do today. Now, what's going on with that? Why is that in the West, despite our material, relative material prosperity, we give less and than we did previous generations? And I would hazard a guess, though I couldn't find the stats on it, that if we compared to other countries who are relatively poorer, that we would find the same trend. Why is that? Well, let's think about why we give and why we don't give and why we want money. We don't want money for its own sake, do we? Money is a derivative good. That is, it's something that we have because of what we can get from it, what we can derive from it. So money gives us certain things. The kind of caricature of a person counting their money is not because they love money itself. It's what money gets you that is the key thing. And what do people want with money? Well, apparently the most common answer when people are asked about what they want with their money is they want financial freedom. What does financial freedom mean? Well, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau defines it this way. A state of being wherein you have control over day-to-day, month-to-month finances, so control. You have the capacity to avoid financial shocks, so security for the future. And you're on track to meet your goals and have the financial freedom to make the choices that allow you to enjoy life, so happiness. So let's focus on three things there. Control of your life, security about the future, and happiness. Those aren't the only reasons we want money, but I'd I'd hazard a guess those are three of the most common reasons why we desire money. It gives you control, it gives you security, and you also believe it will give you happiness. Well, does it? Let's just pause and reflect on it. Does money give you control, security, and happiness? Let's think about the first two. Let's clump them together, control and security. Here's how it works, right? So you you get some money, and that gives you a measure of control over some area, maybe over your ability to control basic budget. You know, you're able to provide for the material goods you need just to do life. So you get a measure of control over that area. But you know, once you enjoy a measure of control over one area of your life, you start to evaluate the other areas. So you start to think about maybe housing, and you think, okay, it would be nice to have a bit more control over my housing situation, maybe rental or buying. And so you start to have goals about what you could do with more money. So you desire more money to gain control over another area of life. And then if you're able to do that, then once you've got control over basic spending and your housing, what do you then think? You think of other areas that you feel uncertain in. So maybe your children's education. It would be nice to have control over that, wouldn't it? What if the schools around me go down? So maybe private education would be helpful. Then I could buy some control over an important thing, like my children's education. So you have another area that you've now got to get more money to. And then you start thinking, well, what if any of those areas then were undermined by some financial shock? So what do you do? You get insurance. Or you invest in a wide portfolio so that you can absorb financial shocks. So you then start having to be concerned with your portfolio. Do you see how it works? The more control you think you get, the more areas you see you don't have control over, the more investment you have to put financially and emotionally into those areas, the more questions it raises about, actually, am I in control or secure at all? In other words, it's never enough. Or in the words of that great philosopher of our generation, Biggie Smalls, the notorious B.I.G., mo money, mo problems. That's how it works, right? And judging by your faces, none of you are surprised by this. When we pause and think about it, it all makes sense. 
But in the moment, we believe more numbers on my bank balance, more control. And it doesn't work like that. Or think about happiness. You know how it works, right? You start off and you just want a few things just to get by, and that will give you happiness because scraping by is not enough. Then you start to get those things, and then you start to notice that as you get those things, you look around and you see other people have other things, and you think, ah, I'd be happy if I had what she has or he has or what the magazine tells me I should have or what the billboard puts in front of me that other people have, and so you desire those things. In fact, you're no longer happy now, are you, until you get those things. And so you get those things, and how long does the happiness last? It's gone so quickly, isn't it, once you get those things? So you then, your heart says to you, well, that's because you haven't got something else, and so you see something else. And so you just desire, and you always want a little bit more, saying, when I get that, then I'll be happy. And I imagine if we took a survey of people in this congregation, those who have relatively a lot would probably say, I'm okay, but I'm not particularly happy. There's always something that I think will make me happy. And those of you who don't have much would say, I'm telling myself that actually when I get there, then I will be happy. In other words, it's an illusion. Now, we know this because it's written in all of our great stories. I mean, why is it in the children's stories that you have dragons guarding treasure and the treasure is usually enchanted? Why is that? Well, of course, it's warning us, right? I mean, even the children get this, that treasure is enchanted. It, it, it enchants you. It, it sucks you in. It enslaves you. And the dragon is because it's dangerous. Treasure is dangerous. See the children's stories. Think of Smog in The Lord of the Rings. When the dwarves finally come in and get the gold back from Smog, then are they happy? No. A, a kind of enchantment comes across them, and Thorin and their leader is as though he's enslaved. He ceases to be the dwarf he once was because the gold has a hold on him. The stories are warning us, so it shouldn't be a surprise to us. But Scripture needs to warn us as well, because control and security, happiness, no, you, you don't get those things from money. Money promises those things, but it's an enchantment. It's an illusion. But the Macedonians, well, I put it to you that we want to be like them, don't we? They are generous even in extreme poverty, and look at what we're told about them. Verse 2 overflowing joy. In other words, they've got in poverty the thing we crave in riches. Isn't that striking? They've got in poverty the thing we really crave in our riches. So how can we be more like them? Well, look with me secondly as we consider a transforming gift, a transforming gift. This whole passage pivots around one of the beautiful verses in Scripture, verse 9. Verse 9, we get the um, verses before it, as Paul gives context to his appeal to the Corinthians to give in verses 6 to 8. We get the verses after it in verses 10 to 12, as Paul finally calls on them to give in uh, verses 9, uh, sorry, in verses 10 to 12. But verse 9 is the pivot verse where Paul centers his theology on this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I mean, the economy of words, as Paul explains the gospel here, is amazing. This is one of these verses you could preach 10 sermons on um, if you wanted to. But let's just try to unpack it a little bit. First of all, just on a simple level, this is the gospel. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, well, how was Jesus rich? He's the Son of God. 
In his pre-incarnate existence, in other words, before he becomes born as a man, Jesus had infinite riches, the riches of being divinity, the riches of heaven, wanting for nothing. God wants for nothing. He has everything because it all comes from him. Think of the splendor and the glory of Jesus Christ, enthroned above all kings and queens, served by angelic beings, the glory, the splendor, the riches, and yet what does he do with that? The Son of God gives it all up. Yet for your sake he became poor. How did he become poor? Well, in terms of a step down, to go from divinity to humanity, although he was still fully divine, is a big step down, isn't it? But think of his life. Was he born into splendor and glory? He wasn't born into a palace, was he? He was born no room in the inn. He was born as a displaced person. And then as he grew up, he grew up as a lowly carpenter's son. And then as he got to his adult life, he had no home. He says even the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? He had no material possessions. He relied on the generosity of a group of women who gave to him and his disciples to sustain their ministry. So he didn't own anything. He didn't have any money in the bank. He was truly poor, no disposable income. But of course, that material poverty is just a glimpse of his spiritual poverty as he gives up all lays of claim that he has to glory. He gives it all up, ultimately going to the cross, where everything, even the little that he did have, was stripped away from him. His dignity stripped away. His garments stripped away as he was naked on the cross for all to scorn at. And then he gives up all of the spiritual riches he'd had, supremely his relationship with his father, as the father turns his face away from him on the cross, so that he now, dejected, rejected, with nothing, gives it all up. There's nothing more to give. He even gives up his blood. It's all gone. Why? That final part of the verse, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich and what riches you have. In Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, he calls you a son and a daughter of the Most High. You are now royalty, though you don't deserve it. For all of the ways you seek control and security and happiness outside of God, he pays for that on the cross so that now you're not only forgiven, but you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have infinite glory given to you, not because you deserve it, but because of Christ's death on your behalf. You're a daughter of the King. You're a son of the king. In fact, you are kings and queens. You'll have crowns in the new creation. And the riches of the new creation that all who trust in Christ will enjoy will be so astonishing. We often don't talk about this because as Christians, we somehow have a material spiritual division. But the riches of the new creation, think of the imagery. When you describe the new creation in the Bible, it's full of gold and it's full of jewels. And you say, well, those are just metaphors, Pete. I get that. But what are they metaphors of? Abundance, prosperity. The wine flows. The food is never lacking in the new creation. It will make the most wonderful experience you could have in this life look like a mere cardboard cutout. That's yours if you trust in Christ. And you have every spiritual blessing now. He gave it all up for you to have that. That's the gospel. So when you really grasp that, how does it impact your view of money? Well, money, of course, as we said, can promises you control and security. Let's think about that. How does this change your view of control and security? 
When you really grasp that Jesus Christ has given up everything for you, he, the sovereign son of God, has been rejected so that you might be accepted. When you know that, you think, if he's given up everything for me, he won't deny me anything. And therefore, he's perfectly in control of everything, and I can trust him with that. My Father in heaven has my best interests at heart. He's got it. You fear the future. Why would you fear the future? The one who is uniquely in control of the future loves you and has died for you. You fear some circumstances right now. The Lord is sovereign over those circumstances, and he's died for you. So do you doubt that he will do what's in your best interests? So control? No human being can exert control. I can't even control my children. If you doubt that, watch me trying to stop them getting chocolates from the table at the end. But in Christ... The one who is in control has given it all up for us so that we might trust in him and know he's got it. Or happiness. You say, I'd just like God to make me a bit happier. Well, Jesus gave up his happiness for you so that you might know eternal joy, so that you might be able to be like the Macedonian Christians, overwhelming joy in the midst of challenging circumstances. If you constantly think that you will get happiness when you have dot, 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 you will never get happiness. But notice the Macedonian Christians didn't have happiness because of their circumstances. They had happiness in the midst of whatever circumstances. Isn't that what you want? Because then you're really free. Because you've got joy and no one can take it away from you. Circumstances can go. You're still joyful. That's the great desire. You can have it if you know Christ because you know he's given everything for you, and in him you have every spiritual blessing, and your future is secure. The way the gospel changes us. In 2010, Bethany and Don Lansdor were at home. They were a newly married couple in Missouri in the US, and suddenly a tornado was going to hit their small town that they were in. Actually, their house ended up being right in the line of the tornado. They didn't have any chance to get away or to get to the storm shelter, so um, Don, the husband, asked his wife to get into the bathtub, and then there was nothing to put over the top of the bathtub to protect them both, so he lay on top of her in the bathtub, and the tornado ripped through the house. And as it ripped through the house, the roof caved in. It crushed Don, he tragically died, but in doing so, he saved his wife. It's a wonderful picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Many of you here fear the tornado that could come in your life. You fear um, disease, death, cancer, losing your job, whatever it is, there's a tornado and you, you fear it. it. It plays a big part of why you don't sleep well at night. But don't you see, if you trust in Jesus Christ, he's lying on top of you. He's saying, I've got this. The tornado has come, the tornado of God's judgment. It came on the cross and Jesus lay on top of you and he took the whole force of it caving in on him. He died so that you can be protected. Don's wife escaped with barely a scratch on her. She lives to this day because he died for her. That's what Jesus has done for you. You don't need to fear the tornado. Control is an illusion. Security, you'll never have it. In Christ, you can have them both. Happiness, it's yours in Christ. And when you get those things from Christ, it liberates your heart to give. Around this area, there are many wonderful Christian landmarks. If you go just down towards Old Street, there's a um, chapel called Wesley's Chapel. It's where the famous Methodist preacher, John Wesley, and his friend, George Whitfield, powerfully preached the gospel. Actually, they preached the gospel on Clerkenwell Green around here, and thousands of people turned to Christ 
There was one lady at the time, an unremarkable lady in many ways, but a lady of means, a lady called Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. She lost her husband quite early on in their marriage as he died. And she decided on hearing the gospel proclaimed through Whitfield and Wesley to give her life to following the Lord and being generous with her material means. She used lots of her money and all of her influence to further the cause of the gospel in the United Kingdom. She funded the building of Wesley's chapel and many other chapels around the UK. She was derided by her friends in high society for believing the gospel, but she didn't care. She opened every door for the gospel. Thousands of people turned to Christ because she did what she was able. Here's the point. Whether you have a little or you have a lot, if you trust in Christ and if your heart is liberated from wealth, you're radically generous. You can contribute. Everyone can contribute. And who knows what the Lord will do through your giving? But is your heart tethered to the lies of money, control, security, happiness? It won't get those things, but if you trust in Christ, you have them already. And once you get that, you're freed up to give. So let's apply this quite specifically as I close from verses 6 to 8 and 10 to 12 as we think about the act of giving. Verse 7, Paul calls giving the grace of giving. Why does he call it grace of giving? Because it's gracious to those who receive it, and it's gracious to you as you give. It's a twice blessing. Twice in these verses, Paul urges the Corinthians to complete their desire. Look at verse 6. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring to completion this act of grace. But he also says it in verse 11. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. In other words, the Corinthians would talk a good game. They wanted to give, but they never quite got around to it, or at least not this time. And it's very striking that he says in verse 7, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. A survey of Corinthians shows what those three things that they excel in are really like. Faith is miraculous or healing faith that they prize greatly. In other words, it's the benefit of having someone in your congregation who could do miracles and therefore heal you. Speech is ecstatic utterance. It's speaking in tongues which builds up you as the person who does it. Knowledge, they prize greatly knowledge and it builds up the congregation in knowledge. Do you notice the three things that they excel in are all focused on themselves? But in contrast, the things that the Macedonian Christians excel in are focused on others. Let me challenge you. Do you use the gifts you've got primarily to benefit yourself, or do you use the gifts you've got to benefit others? That's the test, and it really exposes where your heart's at. And are you a person who says, I will give, I'll just give in the future, I just haven't quite got around to it, Pete. You're just like the Corinthians. They would say that as well. You know what he says to it? Finish it. Complete it. Do it. Act. Stop thinking about it. Stop talking about it. Maybe even as you pray about it, just do it, to quote Nike. Do it. It's easy to talk about. Hard to do. Three objections I often hear. Mark and I, I suppose, in the leadership team, we often hear. Some people say, well, I don't have the money to give at the moment. I think the Macedonian example removes that, doesn't it? I mean, if they're extremely poor and they gave, it kind of raises the question, is anyone too poor to give? You say, well, isn't that reckless? It's very interesting. Christians Against Poverty, who are the most successful currently in the UK um, debt relief agency, when they are counseling people in 
debt poverty and how to get out of their debt, they encourage them to think about even a small amount of their, of their um, finances each month to give. Isn't that really interesting? And the research shows that those who give are more careful with their finances and therefore end up paying back their debt quicker. Isn't that interesting? So again, the research would say, carefully of course, but give something. Even if it's when you were going to buy yourself a chocolate bar, you just say, I'll put that money to one side and I'll give. Everyone can give something, even those paying back debt. Do it carefully, hear the riders, but no one is too poor to give. I think that's the Macedonian example exposes that. Some say, well, I'll give when I've saved up a bit more. I'm saving for a house at the moment, and you know London, Pete, and it's so expensive, and I'll give when, dot, dot, dot. Can I just say that in general, my experience is those who say, I will give when, when, when happens, they then say, I'll give when, and the horizon just gets pushed. In other words, if you don't train your heart to give at an early stage, you just kick the can down the road, you end up never giving. So train your heart now. Uh, Rebecca and I fully plan, when Oliver and Toby are old enough to have pocket money, to train them to give some of that pocket money away. Not to us, of course, you know, because that would be rather perverse. No, but to, of course, to train them as a young age. If you've got children, parents, can I encourage you to do that? It's not just something for adults. Giving is for all people. The generous heart affects all people. You know that. When you have that famous word that you say to your children, share, <laughs> right? Everyone can give. And then lastly, some people say, yeah, but I know Inspire is actually pretty financially wealthy and it's doing pretty well and you don't need my money. Two things to say to that. In the New Testament, giving is a command. It's not actually an option. So it's striking. Paul says in verse 8, I am not commanding you. He could only say that if it was possible for him to command them, right? So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, you can look it up. He does command them there to give. So it is a command in Scripture. So on a baseline level, you're disobeying God if you don't give to your local church. But Mark and I, like Paul, don't want that to be the motivation. We want grace to be the motivation because we care about your hearts. So be motivated by grace and give. But if you're saying, well, maybe Inspire doesn't need my money, well, maybe we don't, but the community around us here really does. And London really does. Because London is spiritually poor. And there's so much we would long to do for our community and for London as a whole with our vision to inspire London with the gospel that we can't do right now because we don't have more resources. Feel free to scrutinize how we spend our money. We've got those cards with you. There you can look at it. We want to be totally transparent. And you can input into that and speak to us, the leadership team, if you don't like how we're spending the money. That's part of a conversation. We're up for that. We really are. So push into it. We're hiding nothing. But be partners with us and this desire to inspire London with the gospel. And if you gave us more money to the church, we would be able to do more to bless others in the community and in London with it. So three potential objections, three calls to give. So what should you do? Paul says, complete the work, give. Let me leave it there. Let me pray a prayer for us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, you know how our hearts get so easily tethered to funds and to money and to material circumstances. And we're sorry for that, Lord God. This passage shines a light on that and scrutinizes our motives and our desires, Lord. And yet, verse 9 gives us that glorious possibility of being liberated from the desire and the illusion of control or security or happiness and instead being liberated in the gospel that we have all those things in Jesus Christ, if we trust in him. 
So liberate our hearts, Lord God, to give. Might we not see this as an incidental area to our Christian walk, but as an essential area to our Christian walk, we pray. We ask it for your glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen.